I can hear the countdown music in my head. <laughs> Again, I apologize to listeners. Uh, Very close. I'm I am not a musician at all. <laughs> music musician. <laughs> we should get a music musician on our episodes. Doing music with math. <laughs> Hello! Hello. Welcome to Not Yet a a Doctor. This is our 13th episode, so lucky or unlucky, depending on how you feel about numbers that aren't on elevator panels. And it's our bonus episode, it's our quizzesode, so yeah, that means we're just going to be doing short questions about science and answers, and we're going to try and trick each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who are you? Oh, I'm Sienna. <laughs> My name is Sienna. I forgot about the name. <laughs> My name is Sienna. I'm a PhD student at McGill University. My name is Beth, and I'm doing my PhD in particle physics at Sapienza University of Rome. And my name is Alistair, and I'm a PhD student at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. And we are the PhD three. To be. Be. Woo. Okay, phew. We made it through that. <laughs> <laughs> Good job, us. So this episode is intended to tide you over between the end of our first season, boo, cry, and the beginning of our second season, woohoo, cheer. Um, So we will be back in your ears in January, and we know you're all very excited, Um, so we hope that you can stick around until then. If you can't, just keep listening to our first season, it's great, it definitely bears re-listening to. if you've enjoyed the first season, or if you haven't enjoyed the first season, and if there's something more that you want to hear in the second season, or if there's something less that you want to hear in the second season, please do get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. Um, we can be found on all of the social media as well. Except TikTok, but it's it's forthcoming, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> TikTok is, uh, is another thing, like... Our social media manager still has to work out how to use TikTok, so we'll get there, probably. Um, But until we get TikTok, you can definitely find us on Twitter at NotYetADR, Instagram, NotYetADR, and Facebook, NotYetADR. So, we're doing a quiz episode, and I'm super excited to get started with these questions. Uh, The way this is going to work is one of us is going to ask a question at a time, and the other two are going to write down the answer, and then each of us will have a chance to show our answers and maybe discuss a little why we why we chose that answer, and then the quizzer will give the correct answer, and we can have a little discussion on that. We're going to read out our answers, not show them, right? Oh yeah, sorry, you'll read them out. You'll read them okay. out. Yes. Um, show and tell. And um, listeners at home can also play along and try and figure out the answers in between when we ask the question and then reveal the answers. who Who's going to go first? How are we going to decide who goes first? So I think we decided that, like how we do our order of episodes, Alistair, Sienna, Beth, we're also going to do our order of questions, Alistair, Sienna, Beth. So Alistair, you can continue talking if you want. to me. Okay, yeah. We'll just jump right into the, the quiz then. I don't Let's... know. Do we need to establish ground rules, like no fighting and... 
Okay, so ground rules, ground rules. No holding grudges longer than a day. <laughs> Whoever's quizzing gets the final word on how the points are distributed, even if they are wrong. Ooh, points. The, be honest with your answers that you write down. Don't change your answer if you hear a better one that the other person says. <laughs> um, are we ten? Well, <laughs> things get competitive and then people start to, uh, yeah. People start to bend the rules. If you don't have an answer, make up the funniest one you can think of. Oh, that's a good idea. That's a very good idea. Oh, yeah. Points will be awarded for funny answers, too. It's because I listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is a great NPR kind of news quiz show. And sometimes if they just don't know the answer, they just say anything ridiculous that pops into their head. And it's hilarious and fantastic. So. Okay. You're welcome for that free bit of advertisement for your very famous show that you definitely didn't need. <laughs> wait, wait, don't tell me. <laughs> and finally, the last rule is there are some gotcha questions. At least I've put some in. Sienna, I think, has a couple. Beth, do you have any gotcha questions? Um, we'll see. I definitely <laughs> hope so. If they get you, they might be a gotcha question. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I definitely have at least one which I'm expecting to be a gotcha question. Good. So these are questions where you thought you knew the answer, but actually you were wrong or misinformed. Yeah, I don't think I have any of those, but I think I have like trick questions, hopefully. Okay. All right. So let's... Okay. let's... I'm, I just didn't know what you guys would know the answer to. Right. So... Yeah, I, I didn't... No, I have no gauge. I was, <laughs> I was saying to my friend the other day, I didn't know how to do this because I don't know how smart you two are with chemistry things. <laughs> Cause, like, I felt the same way about very. you guys in biology. Yeah. I was like, when was the last time they heard about trees? Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. What's a tree? It's <laughs> up for debate, okay? <laughs> Uh-oh, oh no. I'm kidding, tree scientists, don't at me. Okay, are you ready for question number one? Mm-hmm. So ready. Okay. What is the heaviest element produced by fusion reactions in stars? down your answers. Do you have your answers written down? I have mine, but like, I don't know. So don't. Yeah, I have my answer written down. Okay. Oh, I guess I should come up with a funny answer. We're going to go in, in, I'm going to alternate the order so it's fair. I definitely think this is a physics question oh. though. This is a nuclear physics question. It's an element. It's about an element on the periodic table. Bath. <laughs> Okay, okay. Wait a second, wait a second. Stop writing. No, stop writing. You have an answer down. No, but remember when I said you have to come up with a funny answer if you have no idea? I wrote down an answer, but I'm not exactly... No, you have something written down, Sienna. <laughs> I mean, I wrote down a guess. Based on, like, maybe having read something once and, like, oh, okay. this popping into my mind, but I don't think it's right. So I've also come up with kind of funnier answer, so we'll see. Okay, well, let's start with you, Sienna. What did you write down? Okay, so my... Funny answer, which is not that funny, but honestly, it was short notice, okay? Is the element of <gasps> surprise. And <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> and my more serious answer, which I'm just like, my guess is lead. Okay. Lead is your answer. Beth, what is your answer? Wait, I need to check. Can you please repeat the question? No, you. You can't check. I can't check. What? I can't have the question repeated. Okay, then my answer is iron. So I will say that, uh, Sienna, you are incorrect, unfortunately, and the correct answer is iron. Beth, you are correct. I just wanted to check that it wasn't, like, in a supernova or something. Nice. Because no. In super high energy, 
events you can create the higher higher mass elements which is how things like lead actually do exist in the world mm-hmm. so my answer wasn't completely wrong <laughs> it wasn't completely wrong but i did say fusion reactions in stars and yeah, there's this yeah. concept in chemistry known as the iron peak which is basically a natural abundance of elements and it starts with hydrogen and goes down and then goes up to iron and then goes down from there and while you can find other heavier elements in the cosmos iron is one of the most abundant elements because it is the heaviest element that can be produced from fusion cool in stars I didn't know that. we'll yeah. probably post a diagram of that on our social yeah. media if you want to have a look yeah it's it's also an interesting thing that all the elements that are lighter than iron nuclear fusion uh produces energy so that's how it continues to happen in stars but then yeah. after iron it consumes energy so is iron like this middle ground where it doesn't do either um no it, it still produces energy that's why it's so favorable and then it's okay. down from there yeah okay well done beth point for you Woo! great question i told you it was physics okay so i guess i'm next yep Ooh, which question am I going to start with? Now I'm stressed. I'm sweating. I'm like, oh, God. Got to ha- follow up with a good question. <laughs> I'm going to go with this question. It's multiple choice. Okay. So I'm going to read out a few options for you. But the question is, which of the following fruits are not classified as a berry? We have blueberry, raspberry, Banana, kiwi, cranberry, and pumpkin. Ooh, and only one of them is not a berry. Yes. Blueberry, raspberry, banana, kiwi, cranberry, and pumpkin. I've got my answer. All right, I've got an answer, but I think it's probably too obvious to be true. Okay. Beth, you go first. What's your answer? Banana. Okay. And Alistair, do you have an answer? I, I put cranberry. Okay. Klaxon sound, you're both wrong. <gasps> Woo! The raspberry is not a berry, or not a true botanical berry. Huh. Why? So, a botanical berry refers to, like, a specific structure of edible stuff, fruit, kind of, on a plant. On a plant that is produced yeah. uh-huh. from the ovary of a single flower. And so there's kind of like these different definitions of fruits, depending on also then what part of the ovary develops into the flesh and then what part, like how the seed is in the flesh. And so essentially what this comes down to is that with berries, the seed is inside the fleshy part and there's no like hard outer shell. But in this other set of fruits called drupes, D-R-U-P-E-S, they have a hard coating over their actual seed. So like this is like plums where they have like a hard pit. The seed is actually inside Mm. the hard pit. And this is what a raspberry actually is. So if you think of all of those little balls on the raspberry, little droplets, they're called actually they're called droplets. Droplets. (laughs) Because it's an aggregate of drupes. So the seed is actually inside the seed of the raspberry, which is then surrounded by the fleshy bit. Oh, that's amazing! Whereas in actual botanical berries, the fleshy bit surrounds the 
seed proper. Oh, interesting. This is like kiwis, where the seeds are embedded in the fleshy bit. Bananas, although their seeds are so small nowadays from selective breeding that you don't really think of bananas having seeds, but they're also embedded in the fleshy bits. Mm -hmm. And this also applies to a lot of like gourds as well. And eggplants too. Eggplants are berries. So pumpkins are berries. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. And aubergines as well. Yeah, eggplants are as well. I, okay, yeah, I was I was talking with a friend yesterday about this because we were eating some eggplant and I was like, I think eggplants are actually a fruit. And they're like, what? No, it's a vegetable. Like, well, they have seeds, but you can't, like, it's out of breeding. They don't have the so seeds the, anymore. Yeah, the interesting thing about this is there is like a very botanical definition of what a fruit is, which right. is just a fruiting body of any plant, yeah. but less of so for a vegetable, which is like, usually you can like, kind of vegetables are defined as any other sort of edible portion of a plant that yeah. doesn't come from the sex organs of the plant, but right. it's less, wait, wait, it's wait, more wait, wait, wait. of a um, nutritional classification. You're telling me that eggplants are sex organs of the plant? <laughs> <laughs> Anything you're eating that has seeds in it was probably the ovary of the plant. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so what's interesting then, strawberries are also not berries, but strawberries are an even different classification called an accessory fruit. <laughs> Where the strawberry fruity part actually develops from, like, the extra embryonic tissues, so not from, like, the ovary or the seed or, like, fertilized thing itself. And then the seeds are actually what developed from the ovary. Interesting. And the fleshy, fruity bit of the strawberry just, like, surrounds all of the ovaries, I guess, technically. Something like that. So an accessory fruit, because it's not actually formed from, like... That's so weird. The fertilization of the plant. Yeah. 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 That's, that's actually really interesting. Yeah. Um, a tomato is also berries then. Are it tomatoes? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. I think a, okay. like a lot of the foods that we eat are actually berries, in the botanical sense. Because I'm intending, if I if I get to go to the supermarket in time tonight, I'm intending to make a aubergine and tomato parmigiana. So like aubergine and then... Berry salad? It'll also have root veg in there. It'll have some <laughs> carrots in there. It'll have some mm. stalk veg. Nice. I don't know what celery would count as. I think it's just the stem of the plant, yeah. Water, mostly. Yeah, stalks, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it'll have two nice. types of berry in there. It's almost a fruit salad. That's very mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like basically yeah. a, a fruit salad. Basically. <laughs> a cooked right. fruit salad. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. So, oh, can I just tell you one more thing? Yes. There's one other. There's a good word associated with this. So, a plant that like creates berries or bearing berries is said to be baciferous. Okay. Baciferous. Baciferous plant. Oh, interesting. All yeah. Right. Fun All little right. word that you can impress your like friends a... with. Oh, look at that tree. It's baciferous. Look at that baciferous <laughs> so tree. So berries yeah. and gourds. No, bananas and gourds are berries, but raspberries are not. There you go. Now I know. And neither are strawberries. Neither are strawberries. So presumably neither are blackberries, since blackberries are basically like raspberries. Yeah, they're also aggregate droops. A bunch of little droplets. Droplets. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Next time I eat a raspberry. Yeah. Little droplets. (laughs) You should separate out all the droplets and eat them individually. (laughs) That would be a lot of work. (laughs) All right. Are we ready for a for a bath question? Barely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'll try. (laughs) Get my notepad ready. Okay, me being me, I love statistics. I mean, I like hate studying statistics, but like, I love looking at graphs and numbers and stuff like this. Oh no! 
So I like to get my questions for this episode. I exploited my network to the max and like asked all of the physicists that I knew if they could uh, provide me with a question. Wow. And so this one comes from my colleague Gabriele, and he has sent me a statistics question to ask. Oh no. So the question is: Given that a family has two children, one of whom is a girl, what is the probability that the other child is a boy? Oh, this is a really good Darn, question. This is like the coin flipping question. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So I, I know I probably don't have the right answer for this, but I'm just going to go off of <laughs> my answer. Okay, all right. We'll go through it at the end anyway. Which of you has the strongest desire to go first? Alistair has to go first because he hasn't yet. Oh. <laughs> okay, Alistair, you go first. You haven't gone first yet. Um, well, I, I realized I should have come up with a funny answer because I just put down a, a guess. and So I'm, I'm, my guess is 25%. Okay, that's not a bad guess. Sorry, was the question... They have a boy, and what's the chance the other one's a girl? Well, the question was the opposite, but, like, the statistics is the same. Okay. So what's your answer, Sienna? I don't want to be gotcha'd. Okay. But my answer was going to be... This depends on whether you're counting it as an individual circumstance or not. Yeah. So my answer is for the individual circumstance, it's a 50% chance. Okay, what's your other answer? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to do, like... Okay. I remember somebody taking a statistics course and explaining this to me, but I don't know how to do that math, so I'm guessing <laughs> okay, higher than 50%. Right. <laughs> Sienna, I'm afraid you have been gotcha'd, so Clacton knows you here. Alistair, you were also wrong. Yeah, I figured. So if you think about it, like, there are, like, if you have two children, there are four possibilities, assuming a gender binary, which is, like, problematic in itself, but, like, right. most people fall into the gender binary and therefore most likely you have four options for the genders of these children right but we're talking about sex not gender anyways sure yeah okay we can talk about but then even then there's intersex people and like but yeah yeah so there are four options either you've got two boys you've got uh the first one is a boy the second one is a girl the first one is a girl the second one is a boy or they're both girls. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, like, out of these four possibilities, we've already eliminated one by saying that one of them is a girl. But we haven't told you which of them is a girl, whether it's the firstborn or the secondborn. Mm. I thought you said the firstborn was a girl. No. I said one of them was a girl. Yeah. I definitely hope I said one of them was a girl. Oh, I heard the first one was a girl. No, she said, she said one of them was a girl, because I was going to ask, does it matter Oops. the order? But then I was like... It probably does. There you go, you see. So there's only one way out of of three that both children could be girls. So therefore there are two chances in three that Mm -hmm. uh, the other child is a boy. This is interesting because he told it to me in Italian, and obviously Italian is a gendered language. So like when you say children, in general, it's like masculine. And he was like, one of them is a girl. And I was like, ha, you're trying to gotcha me. The chance is 100% that the other one's a boy because otherwise it would have been the, me- the female 
plural of children, but no, that wasn't the answer. I was like, that's <laughs> not going to translate into English. How am I meant to do this in the podcast if it doesn't translate into English? <laughs> but we learned some interesting statistical facts instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the answer is The answer two is two thirds, yeah. So, but if, if the question had been, they already had a child that was a girl. <laughs> if, <laughs> it, yeah, you're right. If the question was, given that their first child yeah. is a girl, what's the probability that the second child is a boy? Then yes, the probability would be a half. And I really hope that's not how I phrased the question. I'm sure it wasn't, but I misunderstood anyways. It's not. Sorry. So it's a 60, 66.6% chance. 66.7 yeah. if you just want to use easier numbers. It you can round. Depends yeah. whether the rounding, whether the um, recurrence symbol was implied, but yes. Oh, okay, this is... Quick diversion, we'll cut this out of the podcast, but Sienna, remember how you blew my mind about the rounding rules for fives? What? I don't want to take too much time with this, but um, Beth, if you have a number 1.65, yeah, and you need to report it to two significant figures, how would you report it? 1.7. Why? Because usually you round fives up. But if you round fives up, are you not biasing the data? Yes. How are you biasing the data? Upwards, I don't know, like... I don't know what you... But, but, but is that a bad thing? Not if you only care to two significant figures. So when I learned boundary rules in high school, it was that um, one, two, three, four, and five um, round... If you Sorry, if you round one, two, three, and four down, and five, six, seven, eight, and nine up, you're biasing the data because you're rounding four integers yeah. down and yeah. five integers yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with fives, you look at the digit before it and mm-hmm. if it's even you leave it so 1.65 would stay as 1.6 but uh-huh. 1.75 would round up because it's and if it's odd you give it a prod you move it up and uh-huh. so then you're equally biasing the data yeah. up and down yeah and then a couple years ago i was telling this to sienna because we were randomly talking about significant figures because we're nerds and <laughs> sienna was like but what about zero and i was like what and she's like well zero is an integer so zero one two three and four all round down that's five integers Five, six, seven, eight, nine, all round up. That's five integers. And it blew my freaking mind. So Sienna, I wanted to tell you that I was in the lab yesterday with a friend and told him this fact and blew his freaking mind too. Okay. I think um, I think this should stay in the podcast because I find it really interesting and I'm also a nerd. But I think it's really interesting because it's actually quite important in programming because computers can't understand an infinite number of like an infinite precision of numbers Mm -hmm. so like rounding effects become quite important and c plus plus has a really annoying habit of always rounding down unless you tell it to do something more intelligent so like Mm -hmm. if you put in 1.6 and you say take the integer of this Mm -hmm. and c plus plus will be like oh that's one and you're like no it's not it's much closer to two it's closer to two on the number line so you have to be aware of these things whereas python at least in the new version of python in python 3 uh if i understand correctly i think it does something like weird and clever that like 1.5 1.5 would become rounded down, but 2.5 would be rounded up. So you like compensate like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So that's the Alistair method. That's the that's the method that I learned that if it's yeah yeah something like that yeah. Well, it's actually the opposite. Either way, because 
odds you. But anyway, I don't know. It might still be the opposite. But, but like, it absolutely it, and I have yet. If if a, a mathematician is listening, <laughs> or someone that thinks that mm-hmm. I'm wrong is listening, and can write in to phd32b at gmail.com and tell me I'm wrong and why, I would love to hear evidence to the contrary yeah give us your best rounding method yeah we would be so fascinated to hear with such a bunch of nerds because i've i've looked it up the the first year chemistry textbook that we use teaches this wrong rule the, uh chem Libertex on the web teaches this wrong rule like it's ingrained in chemistry teaching that if <laughs> you're even you leave the number if it's odd you move it up so you're not unfairly biasing your data but everyone is forgetting that 1.60 would quote-unquote round to 1.6. So it's rounded, quote-unquote, down. Does it matter? I don't know. <laughs> it, it, no. Like, this is the thing. is significant figures and stuff, in the grand scheme of things, I'm sorry, analytical chemistry students, <laughs> it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things until you're doing very, very precise measurements. Which yeah. So it does matter. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Not in everyday life. But it, along with that, an interesting thing, a question we ask on our quizzes, five times five, Report that to the correct number of significant figures. What do you get? What's the correct... Oh! What correct number? He means one because they both have one sig fig. Um, I would... That's 30 then, I guess. Uh, yeah. Five times five is 30, 30 if you're yeah. reporting it to one significant uh, figure. Yeah, that's true. That sounds like a first-year labs question. And then you have to ask yourself sometimes, are significant figures useful or not? <laughs> if they're giving you the wrong answer. Yes, you know, it's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's not wrong. It's 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 reporting it to the correct degree. Yeah, of precision. but why would you want such a low degree of precision? Yeah, yeah. Because well, you can't report something to a higher yeah. degree of precision than what you have. If you only have one significant figure of precision, you can't report two significant figures. Yeah, I mean, I get it in chemistry when you're working with like numbers that might actually have a sort of physical representation, but when you're working with abstract math, like five being a concept of five counted things you can just count it up yeah, yeah, to yeah. 25 you don't need like you know that it is equal to 25 no yeah, yeah the the number five has unlimited number of significant figures as a as a yeah. concept like if you're if you're doing ratios like if you're looking at you know there's two moles to every three moles of this reactant that's not one significant figure that's just a ratio so that's excluded from that kind of thing but if you're if you're measuring stuff i get it i, I know what you can see anyway thought I would go on that digression. thought I would just tell you, Sienna, that I blew someone's mind yesterday <laughs> with this rounding rule. I'm glad you like my rounding method. I learned it in, like, grade 10, so... No, but, see, I learned in grade 11 this <laughs> alternate method and have used it and have taught it to students. So if any of my students are listening and I told you that you were wrong, I apologize. I was, I was actually wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, like, nervous. This is, like, just the difference between, like, Eastern Canada and Western Canada. Although you went to high school in Western Canada too, so I don't know. But like, I, also this got me through chemistry in my undergrad. I never got the wrong number of sig figs either, but or see, like, like the wrong numbers. So I just don't know. I just don't know why <laughs> this is such a weird difference. I got through, Sienna, I got through my high school and undergraduate mm-hmm. degrees using this method. So like, yeah. this shows you how important sig figs are. <laughs> Not very. Okay. I don't know. I think this is... I think this is a very interesting discussion and I would love it if a mathematician or a computer scientist or somebody who has some stake in this game could like let us know what they think. I've thought about it from a perspective of like is zero an integer? Like mm-hmm. does zero quote unquote round down? And that's that's a discussion for mathematicians because I don't know. 
but just number file has an episode on whether zero is even or not is even or not yeah yeah i don't know if you guys know number file but i think um, i've seen yeah, I, I i've seen number file i like it i think i've seen that episode. yeah next question yeah i guess next question okay here's a good one are you ready what state of matter is glass oh i i'll just i'll just remind you that we had an episode that touched on states of matter in fact i think it was um, our first episode oh no okay at room temperature i'm guessing your meaning yes oh gosh okay oh no um all right do you have your answers written down no but i'm gonna um they go with it anyway she's holding it in her head <laughs> okay well see and i went with you first last time yeah. for my question so i'm gonna start with beth okay. what is your answer um well no do you have an answer written down or are you gonna talk through it it's <laughs> no but i'm i'm going to like give you my stream of consciousness as it comes okay so as you so subtly hinted it is a non-newtonian fluid I almost said that it was a liquid at first, but I don't think it is a liquid because you gave a nice hint about non-Newtonian fluids and it has to be the one that like slowly over time or like with some kind of stress or something or with the force of gravity, I don't know what, gradually like becomes runnier or maybe not. Okay. Sienna? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't, you didn't have a, an answer? A fluid, but non-Newtonian. Okay, a fluid. Um, so, I'm going to say you're both incorrect. Um, buzzer, buzzer, want, want, want. Um, <laughs> glass, technically, is an amorphous solid. Now, oh. this is this is the question that I came across, and it was it was a fun fact. Did you know that glass is actually a liquid? <gasps> And then I looked into it a little bit more and learned that it's not a liquid, it's a special type of solid. It's, in fact, its own class of solids. Amorphous solids are generally either called glassy solids or just Mm -hmm. glass, because there's very few things that are an amorphous solid. But this is, like, this is what, the thing where they get thicker at the bottom over time because it slides Mm. down. So, no, and that's the misconception, (gasps) is that cathedral windows... Um, as far as I could tell, don't actually flow over time. Glass does flow over time, but it doesn't cause it to build up at the bottom. That's probably from the way that they made glass panes back in the olden days. And they just oriented the larger chunks at the bottom when they made the windows. For stability. Uh, Yeah. That was so interesting. I hinted at the episode on non-Newtonian fluids because... I was kind of saying, I was thinking, you know, we don't... Is this a non-Newtonian solid? It's not... So I... <laughs> Did Newton have statements about solids? <laughs> <laughs> it's not non-Newtonian, but what it, what it is, is when glass is cooled, so it is a liquid when it's hot, when it's yeah. in the kiln, but then it doesn't actually solidify when it get, drops below the melting point. Um, it's a type of super cooled liquid as it drops down to room temperature, and then um, as it cools further, the molecular movement basically between the atoms in the glass slow to almost a standstill but it it doesn't form a crystal structure Hmm. and crystal structures are what define solids so so it's like a disorganized solid it's a disorganized solid that's so interesting i swear i learned that at a level physics now that you say it 
Yeah, now that you say it, I'm sure that was in. I don't remember if it was AS or A2 physics, but, like, in school, we definitely studied that. And now that you say it, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. But I had completely forgotten that. Over long periods of time, the atoms do settle into a more crystal-like structure, but it never forms and freezes into a crystal-solid structure. So it's it's not... can I ask a question? Actually, liquid, it's not actually a solid. It's an amorphous solid. Yes, question. Okay, so I know glass is made from melting sand. Mm-hmm. But what is sand, I guess? Like, what is the major constituent of glass chemically, then? Silicon. Silicon. Okay. So is it from, like, silica uh, mineral in the sand? Yes, okay. yes, yes. It's silica. It, it is silica. Interesting. What's the difference between silicon and silicone? A couple of oxygens and the way that it's bound together in a polymeric structure. Silicone is a ketone and silicon is missing, I don't know, <laughs> missing an E. You're, you're correct. No, you're, you're correct. Yeah. Silicone is a ketone. I mean, I don't know what silicon is. I just know that silicone would be. Silicon is a valley. Silicone. Silicon's an element though, right? Please tell me silicon's an element. It is an element, Beth, but that is silicon, <laughs> not silicone. Silicone. Okay. Were you looking at your periodic table? <laughs> yeah, except the periodic table I have above my desk is from like the 1800s. It's a historical periodic table. Super cool. Love looking at it. Yeah. I actually don't have an accurate, up-to-date periodic table. I just use the internet. Oh my god, are you even a chemist? I have it memorized, Beth. It's all up in here. <laughs> Libby Babirkinoff. You don't have a periodic table shower curtain? Or a coffee mug? I don't, actually. I don't have a... If, if any of our listeners would like to get us a gift, um, I will be accepting shower curtains and <laughs> mugs. Um, Sienna, your question. That was a great question. Okay. I'm going to go with this fun little question that is going to premise one of our potential topics for season two. Ooh. 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 Which, the question is, why does alcohol lead to... The spins, quote-unquote. Oh. So dizziness and, like, loss of balance, I guess. Oh, okay. You know when you're lying down and you're spinning? Why yeah. does it do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we know that. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, Sienna, I know. <laughs> and the only thing that can revive you is a full awful. Oh. Don't remind me. <laughs> okay, so answers okay, written down. Um, why does alcohol lead to the spins? No, I don't have an answer written down. Hold on. Okay, I've got an answer. I've got like some random words in my head. Okay, I think I went with Beth first last time. So I'm going to go with you first this time, Alistair. What is your answer for all of the money? Actually, for one point. (laughs) So I I know you said that this was going to be teasing a future episode, but I drew on my knowledge from a past episode. And so I think alcohol, um, ethanol specifically, the chemical, somehow interferes with the receptors for or neurons for place cells which causes you to think that you're moving or Mm -hmm. a room is moving and then i realized that the inner ear does a lot more for movement than your brain does but i'm going to stick with my answer about place cells teasing our episode on place cells what's your answer beth i have i have other words my words are like something about oxygen and hemoglobin and like not being able to get enough oxygen to your brain 
I don't know. Isn't that a thing that happens? Like when you're starved with oxygen, you also get dizzy? Or is that when you get too much oxygen? I don't really know. I think both. <laughs> I think both. Um, oxygen, hemoglobin, okay. those are my words. So, <laughs> the answer is actually, it's the inner ear. So, <laughs> the way that we sense our head movement is through this really complicated system that I'm not going to explain the whole thing of. But essentially, there's these like very fine organs in the inside of our ear. And there's like a floating organ and a tube full of liquid. And there's liquid inside the floating organ too. Okay. And so when you move your head, the liquid in the tube takes a little bit mm-hmm. to accelerate and flow because it's quite viscous. And then it causes the hairs to shift. And that's how you, the hairs detect uh-huh. when they're shifting uh-huh. back and forth. That's how you know that you're moving your head. And then when they like stop moving, okay. the liquid takes a little bit to stop. So it transmits all of this information about essentially acceleration of our head and movement of our head. I am wildly shaking my head around right now. Careful. <laughs> so if you think when you spin around a lot and then you stop and you still feel like you're spinning, it's because the liquid is still going a lot. Oh. <laughs> and so there's, but when you drink alcohol, alcohol is really, really good at diffusing everywhere throughout the body. And specifically it gets into the fluid of that floating inner organ and you're in the other's fluid and it makes it, it thinner. And it, it changes the density. And it changes the density. And since they're normally the, um, Two fluids are affected uh-huh. the same amount by gravity. Uh-huh. But when you change the density of it, they like shift within, and then you start feeling the effects of gravity more when uh-huh. you're moving your head on the organs and they make you feel like you're spinning. That makes sense. That is so cool. So it's like easier for the yeah. organ to like move back and forth because it's the fluid mm-hmm. that it's sitting in is less viscous. Yeah, it's because it changes the viscosity between the two. Sienna, that is such a cool fact. Yeah, that is. That's a really cool fact. Yeah, I thought it was cool. So I'm gonna have to try this out. No, I'm not. I'm not gonna test this. Out. <laughs> <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> or adults. <laughs> or I mean, adults are allowed to do what they want legally within their constraints. We cannot advise nor disadvise against doing things that are either what? legal or not legal in your country. <laughs> 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 but anyways, yeah. So it interferes with the viscosity of the fluid in your inner ear. Is this teasing another episode that you want to do, Sienna? I want to do an episode on how different drugs affect your nervous system. But I mean, alcohol, this is actually just affecting what's called your vestibular system. So the system that's responsible for Hmm. knowing where your head is in space. And there's this like neuron um, tract. There's another episode that um, Alan suggested as well about the cranial facial nerves, which are all of the nerves that innervate the organs and of our head and face. So essentially, they're like really specialized sensory nerves, and they send the information to these locations in your brain. And this is one of them. So it's the uh, ocular vestibular nerve or something like that. Huh. Anyways, there's, I think, like 13 of these nerves that cool. all do different things. Some of them control your eye movements, like rapid eye movements and stuff like that, and how you focus on different things and track. That makes sense. Of course, they innervate your jaw and your face and mouth and your uh-huh. ears. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> I'm I'm just I'm just sitting here like tilting my yeah. head around thinking about this little pellet of liquid floating in another pellet of liquid. Yeah. Fascinating fact, Sienna. Love that. Yeah. Okay, Beth, what's your question? Okay. How does a supernova get rid of most of its energy? Or better put, what takes away most of the energy from a supernova? Can I just clarify a supernova is an exploding star? Yes. Okay. When a heavy star dies, it like implodes in on itself. Yeah. And then 
releases a whole load of energy in a supernova. And please don't ask me more than that because I'm not an astrophysicist. What takes away the energy of a supernova? I got my answer. I have my joke answer because I have no clue. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, Sienna, let's hear your joke answer. So, when a star implodes on itself, it releases a whole lot of energy. This energy is known as star power. And this shines down on all of the humans of the Earth, and some people get more star power than others. And this is how we get celebrities! So celebrities is my final answer, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be taking any further questions. Okay. <laughs> Alright, that's a pretty good answer. Uh, Alison, do you have... I, well, I, I do have... About, but I have questions about the physics of star power. Do we feel it? Or is it like neutrinos, where it just passes through us and we are unaffected by it only some people are maybe more affected by star power than others um it's does it hurt it's more like it's more like radiation in the fact that it changes our dna mm. uh-huh okay and some people just get hit with larger amounts of star power and it just makes them intrinsically oh okay I see. more worth being celebrated i want to know who did these I experiments see. and how to find out that star power came from supernovae very complicated, very technical. Okay, you I wouldn't, wouldn't understand. understand. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work was done underground. They had like underground bunkers where they put babies and then soft they became Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie. So you know you know all of the kids from the Disney Channel? Yeah. <laughs> they were actually in the underground bunkers being bombarded with I mean, power. it never was the Disney Channel, but like I have some conceptual idea of what the Disney Channel There's a is like pretty much was. all of the famous people in America started on the Disney Channel. Okay. Ariana Grande, Miley Cyrus, Britney Spears, Christina, or, um, not Christina Aguilera, uh, um, Selena Gomez. Selena Gomez, Jessica Simpson, Ryan Gosling. Okay. All right. There you go. Yeah. So, Zach Efron. Brad Pitt, Although he's... maybe too. Oh, Justin Timberlake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. There you go. So that's the supernova i like your answer i see and i think that's i think that's correct honestly i i think i'm i'm wrong here yeah you should definitely give yourself a a point for that yeah (laughs) alistair i think that you've got the right answer which must now be wrong if sienna's answer is right yeah so i'm not even gonna bother to say mine um but i said that um all of this energy what was the question where does the energy go (laughs) yeah like how does it get taken away okay so the energy gets taken away by fusion reactions forming elements that are heavier than iron Okay, the answer that I was looking for is that 99% of the energy is taken away by neutrinos. Oh! oh that's a very on-brand answer. Yeah, yeah. that's why I didn't <laughs> want to, like, give you any, like, uh, I was going to say, like, I thought that you'd get it straight away. And that's why I was, like, I was almost, like, foreshadowing my own question by being, like, you guys will know this. Like, you guys will get this straight away. And then, no. like, that would have given it away. But you didn't get it, and I'm not sure whether to be happy or sad. I think we just don't know how to connect the dots of the stars, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's called astrology. That's not <laughs> astronomy. Connecting the dots and the stars. I'm pretty sure constellations also count as astronomy, right? Yeah, kind of. I mean, like, astronomers look for things and classify things in constellations. And they know the distance between stars. But, like, constellations are very, very arbitrary. So where, does, so where do neutrinos come from? Like, if you have a hydrogen yeah. atom, and you break it apart into electrons and protons, there's no neutrons in a hydrogen nucleus, yeah. but you break it apart, 
do then does then the proton get broken apart further into neutrinos? No, it's made of glue uh, quarks. The electron is a neutrino. Okay, right. Hang, hang on a second. Let me find a diagram. Let me find a diagram and I'll send it to you. And hopefully, why when I Google fusion do I come up with Ford cars? <laughs> um, the Ford fusion. This is not good. You Today's episode fusion. is sponsored by All the right. Ford Fusion, a car for every occasion. Especially driving um, into a supernova. No, not at all, actually. So I also thought neutrinos came from radiation breaking up in our atmosphere, and it comes down as a cascade of neutrinos. And yeah, that yeah, they can be produced there too. But if you get so, what happens in fusion? If you get two protons, two hydrogen nuclei, which are obviously just protons. And to make a deuteron, which is a deuterium nucleus, which is one proton and one neutron, one of those protons has to turn into a neutron. And to go from being a positive charge to from having one plus charge to having zero charge, you have to emit something that has a one plus charge, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. What particle has a one plus charge apart from a proton? I thought neutrinos were neutral. Correct. So? Yeah, a negative electron. Is it a positron? Yeah. Yeah, an anti-electron. <laughs> an anti-electron. A, a positive electron. But yes, an anti-electron, exactly. And a lepton number has to be conserved. So that means leptons are, if you listen to our neutrino episode, hopefully it's explained in there, that leptons are the electron, its charged cousin, so it's like it's heavier versions of the electrons so muons and tau's mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. neutrinos are also leptons right so in a proton you have zero leptons when you produce a positron you have essentially minus one lepton because it's an anti-lepton right mm -hmm. so you have to produce something with lepton number plus one and it has to be of equal generation to the positron. So you have to have a... Electron neutrino. Exactly. Okay, okay. Well done, well done Sienna. And that's where 99% of the energy goes in a supernova? Yep. It's producing these neutrinos. Wow. Wow. My turn for a question? Uh-huh. Yeah. Ooh. How mean do I want to be? Oh, no. Be mean. Be mean. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Who was the inventor of nitroglycerin, a key component in dynamite? Oh, um... Santa's got her answer down, Beth. Do you have your answer? Yeah, but I don't know which of the two answers it is. Okay, uh, Sienna, I think I have to ask you first. What's your answer? Okay, my answer is Alfred Nobel. Okay. Oh. Beth, what's your answer? One of either Harbour or Bosch. Harbour or Bosch. Okay, uh, good answers. And Sienna, wah, 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 you got the, uh, the uh, gotcha question. Oh, okay. Because Alfred Nobel did invent dynamite, uh. but nitroglycerin was invented before Nobel came up with dynamite by Ascanio Sorbero, an Italian oh. chemist in hmm. 1846. Ah. I don't know how I was ever going to know that then. <laughs> 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 I 
At least I knew who invented dynamite. <laughs> I know. I thought I thought you guys would both say Nobel. I did not know that Nobel invi- invented dynamite. And that's why then he invented the Peace Prize, apparently, because he felt ah. so bad about inventing something so destructive. I don't know. Interesting. That's the narrative. Yeah. I don't know where that narrative we, comes from. Didn't we go to the Nobel no, Museum? I didn't. No. I didn't either. Oh, and Beth, you haven't been to Stockholm. Okay, never mind. Yeah. Yeah, originally after Cerbero invented nitroglycerin, it was very sensitive to shocks. So it was very hard to transport mm-hmm. and use and move and stuff. And then Nobel did a whole bunch of research on it and turned it into a paste and put it in dynamite for blasting rock and mining. Um, unfortunately, it was also then used for a lot of things in, in war. <laughs> um, and so then, yeah, he did come up with the mm-hmm. Nobel Prize. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah. That was a cool mm-hmm. fact. I don't feel so bad so. about getting that gotcha. <laughs> so some Italian chemist. That was a cute gotcha. So then what about um, Harbour and Bosch? They did like nitrogen stuff, right? Then Harbour Bosch processes. They did, um, I believe they made ammonia. Oh. They developed the process for making ammonia, which yeah, right. originally they claimed was for fertilizer, but was then used to make bombs. Yikes. <laughs> so, Gosh, guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Be nice if we could stop making bombs out of all of the science. Yeah, that would be great. Wouldn't it? There's so much money in the destruction of humanity, yeah. though, Sienna. That's why we should stop using money. Like, so many important discoveries have come out of these, I don't know, yeah. problematic yeah. causes. But I was listening to a podcast by Tim Harford, who I love, he's great, called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. He did an episode on like ammonium or ammonia or the Harbour Bosch process or something like that because mm-hmm. it was really important. I oh yeah, I it was like it was definitely revolutionary on two fronts. It it allowed us to get ammonia and fertilize crops, yeah. and you know crops yeah. were easier to grow. Yeah. Unfortunately, ammonia is also used in bombs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, okay, Sienna, hit us with a question. Okay, guys, are you ready for this question? Yeah. What is the most abundant type of cell in the human body. I have no scale for these things. I I have no scale for the abundance of neutrinos, so like I feel you, Beth. <laughs> these yeah. are two comparable yeah. <laughs> <horrible> things. <laughs> um yeah. Okay. Locked in? Locked in, everyone? Locked in your answers? Okay. Locked it in. All right, I've got to guess it. Um, I think I went Alistair first last time, so Beth, yeah, I'm going to go yeah. with you first. Okay, I'm writing neurons because you're a neuroscientist, and I just feel mm. like that would be the kind of fact that you'd be really proud of. That's very nice. And Alistair? Okay, so I, I know that the skin is the largest organ in the body. Mm, that's true. But then I was thinking, what is the most dense organ in the body? And then I also thought, Sienna, you're a neuroscientist. So I also wrote neurons. Wow, those are both interesting answers. Um, I'm first just going to address your answers. I know neurons are the best cell in the world. I get it. I'm totally with you. But we, even within the central nervous system, there's another cell called astrocytes, which are like at least 10 times more abundant than neurons. They're like the feeder cells and the helper cells. So neurons are not very abundant. Sorry, guys like not not neurons for sure we try and this was a bit of a gotcha question (laughs) but neither of you got gotcha so the answer is uh bacterial cells oh Oh, boo 
Oh. Um, so bacteria, oh. it used to be, there was a paper published like in 1970, I think around then, that said they're like 10 times more abundant than human cells. And this fact was like floated around the media for a while of like, you're mostly bacteria. It's not exactly true. Probably more like one to three times more abundant. Still. But still there's way more diversity and number of bacteria within the human body than there is human cells. That's amazing. But if you do want to know what the most abundant human cell type is, it's red blood cells. Oh, yeah. I was, that was one of my options. That was one of the things that was going through my mind. Yeah. That's an interesting fact, but I would wonder, okay, so the, the bacterial cells are not technically our human cells, right? They're, they're their own cells. True, but, but I did say what is the most abundant type of cell in the human body. <laughs> no, I know, but you're also casting a broader classification with bacterial cells, like if, as opposed to brain cells or blood cells or muscle cells. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. bacteria can include E. coli and another type of bacteria that I can't think of, and, you know, another type of... A third type of bacteria that you still can't think of. But even if you compared bacterial cells to human cells, oh, there's so more there's bacterial cells. Oh, there's more bacterial cells than human cells. Okay, that... Wow, okay, that... Okay, I was misthinking. Misthinking? Yeah. That is... And also, there's way more... So if you just, like, look in the gut at like the number of genes that are expressed in the gut there's like orders of magnitude more bacterial genes than there are like human wow. genes in the body so then but then that is an extraordinary statistic but like are bacterial cells much smaller than most human cells yeah way because smaller. like why don't you look like a whole <laughs> load of bacteria yeah you can't see but like bacterial cells are tiny 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 okay. compared to all human right. cells and are they all throughout our body or is it mainly in the gut? No, they're all throughout our body. So there's a bunch of different... They're pretty much anywhere where you have, like, a moist membranous surface. So in your... So all of the body. All of, like, the internal body, your mouth, your respiratory tract, yeah. your gut tract. Your eyes. Um, all over your skin. Your skin microbiome is also very diverse. Your eyelids, your yeah. face, your... Probably your, in your ears. I have a lot on my face currently because acne is a... <laughs> Is a living condition. That's exact. Acne is caused by oxidized. Like if you have blackheads, oh, those are just oxidized gross. bacteria. Fascinating fact. I love this game. This is fun. And then, I was looking just like another fun follow-up fact to this is that I don't know how much you guys know about viruses, but we know a little bit about viruses because of <laughs> situations, yeah. uh, context. But most people have heard of at least one virus. Right. And I mean, most people could probably name more than one virus that affects humans. So for instance, influenza, coronaviruses, there's multiple types of coronaviruses, multiple types of influenza, rhinovirus. There's obviously um, HIV. Yeah. Uh, HPV. So there's a bunch of different viruses you could think of. HPV. Herpes. As well, that Herpes affects is a virus, isn't it? Herpes. Yeah, right? Like you can just list them. Yeah. There are way 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 more viruses that infect bacteria so if you were to then look at the diversity and number of viruses within your probably gut microbiome it would also be orders of magnitude larger than the number of bacteria interesting can i um mention a really interesting fact that i learned mm -hmm. and here i'm gonna plug uh the podcast well, i can't really plug it because it's online but i want to reference the podcast this podcast will kill you. Great podcast. Mm. Which you guys introduced me to, and then I binged <laughs> and really, really enjoyed. And I remember listening to their episode. They did two episodes on antibiotics, which were both really interesting. 
mm-hmm. especially, I think it was the first one. No, it was probably the second one. Anyway, they were talking to this antibiotic researcher who used machine learning to discover new antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was just amazing that, like, they fed this algorithm um, because I was studying uh, machine learning at the same time and I've used it a bit and I'm probably going to use it some more so I know a little bit about it and it was amazing that like they could use this machinery to like they fed it a load of antibiotic but antibiotics they already knew and then they made it look at a whole list of structures and compounds and chemicals or whatever and it like picked out some that and they like and the success of these things like the researcher was like when I study a new antibiotic I usually the first thing I do is to try and develop resistance to it to like see how it works and he was like after a month I couldn't develop resistance to this thing wow which was amazing and he was like oh I was like a bit frustrated about that because I couldn't study how it worked or whatever but like that's amazing to think that you can use the same tools that I use for, like, something really specific and nerdy, whatever. Oh my gosh, machine learning, yeah. And it's actually kind of fairly easy to do, I think. Like, you have to be a bit intelligent about it, a bit clever about how you design it and, like, what information you give it to begin with, how you train it and stuff like that. But, like, if I can do my relatively simple stuff like having had a few lectures on it then it's not it's not as complicated as it kind of comes across and it's like a very possible thing to use which i think makes it really exciting yeah Yeah, it's cool cool stuff cool so we're mainly bacteria probably 1.3 times more like 1.3 to 1 ratio is the most recent statistic i found okay cool Mm-hmm. But we're way more di- there's way more diversity within our bacteria than I mean within a human cell. Very cool. Yeah. All right, Beth, your question. All right, let's ask it this way around because I think this way around, then you you might be able to get the answer. Who won the 1921 Nobel Prize for Physics for the discovery of the law of the photoelectric effect? Or to give the entire citation for his services to theoretical physics and especially for his discovery of the law of the photoelectric effect. I have my answer written down. Do you know this, Alistair? I think I do. I think he does too. (laughs) Okay. Because I was going to use this as my fact, and then... Were you? Well, I was going to I was gonna make a gotcha question with it, because I... Anyway, but it's, it was too physics-y to be chemistry. Okay, so. all right, I'm going to ask you about your gotcha question in a minute, but Sienna, do you have an answer? I have a guess, but it's probably not right! <laughs> I'm going to go with the person with the last name of Volt. Oh. <laughs> okay. Does someone have a last name of Volt? I don't know. Volta. <laughs> Voltaire? Uh, <laughs> sounds like no. <laughs> no, what was his name? I don't know. Uh, or the person who named the Volt Volt. I just assumed they named the, that. The car? He or did. The... It is named after a person, and he was Italian, and his second name was, Vo- his last name was Volta, and Alessandro Volta. But no, it wasn't after him. Okay. 
It wasn't for him. He died in 1827. Oof. According to Wikipedia. All right, Alistair, what's the answer? Uh, I wrote down Albert Einstein. Yeah, nice. Thank you. Yes, I got away. <laughs> oh, cool. The reason, okay, the reason I knew that is because I was looking up kind of gotcha questions, things you didn't know, um, yeah. actually from this book called Lightning Never Strikes Twice and Other False Facts, and it's just a bunch of facts that you thought you knew the answer to, but actually it's a little bit more complicated, you know, my type uh-huh. of book. And in it, it said, how many Nobel Prizes did Albert Einstein win for his work on general relativity, special relativity, and blah, blah, blah. And the answer is zero. Mm-hmm. He's only won one Nobel Prize for his photoelectric effect work. And then also, uh-huh. as you said, like his general contributions to physics. Yeah. But he didn't yeah. actually win any Nobel Prizes for mm-hmm. yeah. his relativity work, which I think is interesting. How are you going to phrase your question to be a gotcha? Oh, is it going to be the relativity? It yeah, was going to okay. be how many prizes did Albert Einstein win for? But then I was like, uh-huh. he's not a chemist. I can't. You're just going to steal the question yeah. straight out yeah, of the yeah. book. <laughs> <laughs> See, that was another one that I got from my community, my uh, network. Nice. nice. One of the researchers who works at the labs where I work, I was like messaging being like, can anyone give me a question? And he said that. And I was like, oh, this is, like, I've definitely heard this before, but I can't remember the answer. And then when he said, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Like now I remember. But I always forget that the photoelectric effect was Einstein. Like I, because E equals HF, like that's the mathematical formulation of the of the thing. And E is energy, F is frequency, and H is Planck's constant. Mm-hmm. And because it's Planck's constant, I always associate it with Planck instead of Einstein. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, because I you said that, and I thought, oh, who did the photoelectric effect? Mm-hmm. And then I was like, no, I yeah. think I think it's Einstein. <laughs> I think we should actually describe what the photoelectric effect actually is. Yeah. Thank you. Alistair, do you want to go? Okay, I can take a stab at it. Um, The photoelectric effect is that when a photon strikes a material, it can cause a electric effect. It can cause a change in electrical energy. And so you can actually measure photons by having them strike surfaces. Yeah. And measuring changes in voltage. So, yeah, that's a good explanation. So basically, when you hit, when you bombard a surface with photons, they... Is this how solar panels work? 100%. Nice. Probably. If you say so, I'll say them. I think they're photovoltaic, right? Isn't that what they're Yeah, they're photovoltaic. They take advantage of the photoelectric effect to then take that energy and cascade, cascade it through electron acceptor and donor molecules to then put it into a battery. Yeah. Right. Semiconductors, yeah. Typically silicon, right? Uh, Speaking of glass, <laughs> right? I think they use silicon. For well, there's glass involved solar in solar panels, but the I would I think the molecules that are involved in capturing the electrons don't contain silicon. They contain transition metals. Mm-hmm. There's a Wikipedia page on the photovoltaic effect that says it's closely related to the photoelectric effect. In either case, light is absorbed causing excitation of an electron or other charge carrier to a higher energy state. Nice. The main mm-hmm. distinction is that the, f- the term photoelectric effect is now usually used when the electron is ejected out of the material, usually into a vacuum, and photovoltaic mm-hmm. effect used when the excited charge carrier is still contained within the material. Cool. So, yeah. Interesting. To go back and just, like, explain it 
in slightly more detail. In the photoelectric effect, um, they found, this must have been at the end of the 19th century, I guess, I don't know, that they found that if you bombard a conducting material, so like a metal essentially, with photons, you can see a current in it. You can find that electrons are emitted um, and then they travel and that causes an electric current. And the important thing about the photoelectric effect is that what they found was that if you bombard the material with low energy but high intensity light, nothing happens. You don't see this effect of a current forming. The electrons don't get emitted. Whereas if you use very low intensity but high energy light, you do see this, this effect. And if light was a wave, like if you think of sea waves on a on a sea wall, then if you have like a lot of small waves over time, they like chip away at the wall, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas that's not what happens in the photoelectric effect. So it was evidence that light can be a particle mm -hmm. because if you get two billiard balls and like one of them is or pool balls if you're in the US I guess or snooker balls if you're in the UK and you just like snooker and I don't know what the difference between billiards and snooker is but anyway if you get two balls and you throw one of them into another like if the ball you're throwing has low energy then when it hits the other ball nothing's going to happen it's just going to stop right mm -hmm. whereas if you throw it with a higher energy then like it will transfer some of its momentum to the other ball and that other ball will start moving. So that's evidence for light being a particle. There's other evidence for light being a wave, which was already existing at that time. And if you don't know about that, go and listen to episode nine about interferometry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you'll hear about light being a wave. Cool. And so this, this duality became known as the wave-particle duality of light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is fundamental to quantum mechanics. And gave Einstein, or earned Einstein the Nobel Prize. Gave him. Yeah. He, he, yeah. he got the Nobel Prize from it. He, based on this yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we have time for one more question each, yeah? I think so. Yeah. Okay. My final question. Which weighs less? A pound of gold or a pound of feathers? I was going to do this one! <laughs> Is this a trick question? This is definitely a physics question. I feel like I'm being tricked here. Sounds like Beth's going to know the answer. You both have your answers down? Yep. What did you put? My answer is that firstly you should be using SI units. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, they weigh the same. Okay. Sienna, what's your answer? I wrote down they weigh the same. You said a pound of gold and a pound of feathers. Like, I don't know why. This is <laughs> two measurements the same. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha both. And Beth, there's a reason I didn't use SI units. Oh, no. Oh, no. You're not going to be a dick about this, aren't you? And say that you're using a unit of currency. <laughs> no, I'm not technically using a unit of currency. A pound of gold actually weighs less than a pound of feathers because gold 
is measured using the Troy system of measurement, which is used for precious metals like silver, gold, and platinum. Whereas most other goods are measured using the avoir de poids system. So if we're measuring rice or our weight or feathers, it's avoir de poids pounds. But if you're measuring gold or platinum or other precious metals, it's a Troy system of measurement. Are and you this is joking? no and this is used to this day. Boo. <laughs> so so one Troy pound is actually 0.823 of Wardupois pounds. Now I did put this into SI units because I agree, Beth, we should just all use SI units. So it's actually 373 grams for gold compared to 454 grams for the feathers. Hmm. So a pound of gold actually weighs less than a pound of feathers. That's stupid. So why is there a different weighing measurement used for precious metals? Because it's a historical system and it's, you know, used by the rich and hoity-toity. History is garbage. <laughs> Throw it out. <laughs> why do we do things like this? This is exactly... This is like the- Whoa, Sienna, I think you just lost my sister as a listener. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Francis. <laughs> but like... Come on, upgrade to the metric system. Stop weighing things differently. Yeah, literally. This is, like, common sense. It makes, for, it makes for great gotcha questions, though. I have a question about SI units because, like, it's another thing. Uh, like, statistics are obviously very important to me. I believe in them. That's a fundamental thing that really interests me and is very important in science. Units are another really important thing. Like, you have to define your units. And, like, calling two different things by the same name mm-hmm. is just stupid yeah like that shouldn't be that they shouldn't they should be called a avoir de poids pound yeah. and uh whatever the other one poisson yeah. pound was exactly. troy exactly troy pound yes not named after the the trojans yeah it's not named after <laughs> trojans it's actually named after the um city in france <laughs> i learned yes i also thought i would i would go on to a tangent about how we've now recently it was a few years ago but we redefined the kilogram um mm-hmm. to now be part of a constant, and I can't actually remember. Uh, I didn't write this down. I just. Oh, I'm gonna look it up because I'm interested. Hold on. Yeah. So the kilogram. Don't go anywhere. For our anybody. listeners, the kilogram for the longest time um, used to be defined <laughs> by a official kilogram that sat in a basement in France, and they had duplicate ones that were made, and they all weighed one kilogram. And then every ten years or so or something, they'd get together and reweigh them. <laughs> but they've seen over the last hundred years that these kilograms have diverged in weight and so there was a big consortium and conference and decision to redefine the kilogram one of the ways they were going to do it was with a graphene sphere actually so they were going to make a perfect sphere out of this material called graphene which is just carbon and it was going to be a a perfect uh, spherical polished ball and that would be defined as the kilogram but that's still tying the unit of measurement to a physical object which can change and be lost and deteriorate over time. So they've since um, defined it based on uh, some mathematical equation, and I can't remember what it is. The second and the meter, and I'm not going to go into too much detail about that because that's going to be in a question in a second. But, um, oh, wow, okay, 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 okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to bring in some apparent British culture here. Because we all know what the UK is and definitely was like. So I'm on the Wikipedia page for the kilogram. And it says conversions. One kilo is equal to in 
pounds, one kilogram is equal to 2.205 pounds. Do you, know, do you want to know what apparently the British gravitational unit system mm -hmm. unit is called? Stone. Nope. No. Good guess. We do use stone as a, as a measurement for weight, but no. Butter? Lardons. Biscuits. <laughs> no. Another good guess. Chips and gravy. <laughs> no. What? <laughs> Crumpets. What, what do you... Like, in our gardens, right, there's a lot of rain. Trees, shrubs. What really loves rain? Bushes. A Moss. bushel. Lichens. Mm. Mm. <laughs> uh, slimy things. Slug. Oh, is it a slug? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, apparently one kilo is 0 0.0685 slugs. Pew, pew. So, Beth, when you when you were criticizing me for not saying it in SI units. I've never met a slug that is, like, 1.2 kilos. Somebody definitely just went and weighed a wheelbarrow full of slugs that they picked off off the sidewalk and was like, here's a new type of measurement. Uh, we could do a whole episode on measurements in SI units. Actually, I think I might. Oof, okay. I would love to do an episode on SI units. It's it's interesting. Um, so anyway, okay, what's what's the equation, Beth? That uh, Kyoko... apparently it is now. Isn't it defined through the joule or something? Um, kind of, yeah. So it's so Planck's constant is now defined in terms of the ki of the kilogram, and since Planck's constant is a fundamental constant, if you measure it, you know what it is, and it doesn't matter. So then Planck's constant is just defined to be exactly. 6.626.07014 times 10 to the minus 34 kilograms okay. meters per second. No, kilograms meters right. squared per second. And so the thing, the thing that they did is, as I remember it, Planck's constant used to have a whole bunch of trailing numbers, talking about sig figs, had a whole bunch of trailing numbers because the kilogram was defined. Mm -hmm. But now we defined Planck's constant as yep. it's whatever you said over, like, is that 10? Yep, exactly six, six, six this figs, number. Six sig figs or something? Nine sig figs. Nine. So we've defined it to nine Voice. significant figures. So the kilogram is now defined mm -hmm. um, because of that. Anyway, yeah. that's a complete diverting tangent from the question. But uh, yeah, I found it interesting. Now you can use this to outsmart your friends and be like, which way is more, a pound of gold or okay. a pound of feathers? I feel like this is like not. This is not a fun way to outsmart your friends. It's like one oh, of those okay. like. I'm enjoying it. I don't know about you guys. Wow. Well, you know, like, just like adjust my glasses. <laughs> well, actually, um, that's sort of like, yeah, rude nerd. But hey, we learned we learned about two new units of measurement: the troy yeah. pound and the Evoir de pound. And I hate them both. <laughs> and the slug. <laughs> yeah, the slug is kind of cool. I'm and the slug. I'm, I'm I'm interested to know more about the weight of a slug. Well, well, tune in for season two where we'll have an episode on SAE. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it. We'll okay. do it. Sienna. Um, okay. What's going to be my last question? This is so sad. Uh, okay. So I've done alcohol. I've done berries. I've done cell types. Oh my god, you're, you've done so many drugs? Haha. <laughs> 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 I haven't tried cell types. Okay. I'll have to try that drug. I think I'm going to do this question and we'll see. It's, I think it's just interesting. So my question is, what is the maximum height of a tree? In meters, please, because Canadian... I was going to do it in furlongs. 
I've written down a number. I've written down a number as well. Okay. Who wants to go first? Alistair does. Okay. Yeah, I do. I really do. <laughs> okay, so I will say it depends on the altitude at which the tree is growing at. Yeah. Um, mm. True. Because I'm pretty sure that trees that grow higher up on mountains don't grow as mm-hmm. tall. Oh! Why don't they grow as tall? Because they don't have as much oxygen. Uh, because there's less, there's, le- cause there's less oxygen higher mm-hmm. up. And so they can't grow super, super tall when they're higher up on a mountain. So that's probably... Okay, I put 200 meters, but with the stipulation, with the asterisk, that it depends how high the tree is growing. That's my answer. So you're not measuring... Are you... Mm, when you say height, you're not measuring from base of the tree to from ground level to the top of the tree. You are. Oh, I thought you were going to be like, gotcha, measuring from sea level. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, was, I was trying to. So, so my answer is, um, I was trying to think of the tallest tree in the world, and I don't know how tall it is, but I think it's something like two hundred meters tall. So that's my answer with the asterisk. That Do you know it, where the tallest tree in the world is? It's in BC. Oh, really? I think that's cool. One of them is. That's an answer. In the old growth forest of BC, I think. Hmm. No, I think that's the largest tree. It has the largest trunk. Mm. Anyway, there's some big trees in BC. Mm-hmm. Anyway, my answer is 200 meters with the asterisk that it depends on the altitude at which the tree is growing because the higher up you go, the less oxygen there is, so they can't grow as tall. Mm-hmm. Okay. There you okay. go. I just said 110 meters. And the answer is 100, probably 130 meters. <gasps> I was so much closer! <laughs> 122 to 130. So Beth was really close. The tallest trees in the world are like the California redwoods. Yeah. Mm. There, there's one there that's like 118 meters, I think, tall. Okay. You're right. They don't grow as tall at higher altitudes, and that's why you have a tree line on mountains where trees stop growing at all. You can't really mm-hmm. see trees because mm-hmm. they can't grow at higher altitudes. But do you have any idea why the maximum height of the tree could be up to 130 meters? This is theoretical. We've a... never measured a tree that's 130 meters tall. Go, Alistair. I've, I have an idea. Um, it has to do with the vascular pressure of water. So they can't actually bring water from the ground that high up through their root systems into the tree trunk. Like, it's it's just a physics thing where water can't... You need too much pressure to get water higher than 130 meters, and trees can't produce that kind of pressure. That's really interesting. I was going to say gravity, but I think your answer is a lot better. What was your answer going to be, Beth? That somehow, like... I don't know, that somehow fighting against gravity to go taller to get taller at some point became energetically unfavorable i don't really know but i think alice's answer is a lot better so it's actually a combination of both of your answers it's not that they can't necessarily keep pulling water up but there becomes a point when it gets to the energy that's required to produce and like pull the water up in the time it takes to get there and then the energy that they can produce from those leaves and get sugars from mm-hmm. is like stops being favorable essentially that's so interesting mm-hmm. can i give myself a point for being closer than alistair <laughs> yeah of course yeah you were closest to <laughs> going over but like as alistair was saying like altitude affects tree height also like mm-hmm. how much rain there is and the environment really has an effect on how tall a tree will actually grow like yeah that makes sense trees can obviously grow taller in wet environments where they it's much easier to pull water up yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's interesting it makes me think of two things it makes me think of a fact that i heard a long time ago that maybe isn't true but that 
Um, stilettos can't be higher than nine inches because physically you can't stand on something mm. at that angle. Oh my goodness. That's higher than nine inches. I mean, you yeah. can get 10 inch stilettos, but it's very difficult yeah. to walk in that kind of high heel. Probably true. I'm not sure your foot can keep bending. It also makes me think of the upper limit of leaving the Earth's gravitational pull for spaceflight. Mm-hmm. This idea mm-hmm. that, like, you know, you need this much fuel mm-hmm. to escape gravity. Yep. But then that weighs more, so you need more fuel to yeah, counteract yeah, yeah. that weight. And so you it's this really interesting balancing act. Mm-hmm. And so similarly with the trees, you can go higher, but yeah, you yeah. don't get enough, enough energy. And so it's this maximum, like, plateau where the height... It's, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me oh, so when interesting. kind of multiple factors combine to form a yeah. maximum. And this was... They discovered this, or this was, like, I guess, proposed in a nature paper in, like, 2004 by a team that climbed all of the redwoods and measured their height. <laughs> or a bunch of redwood wow. trees. <laughs> so there's, like, theoretical math involved, but also measurement of real tree heights. Yeah. Because they had to, like, find out whether or not there was a tree taller than these theoretical points. Mm-hmm. And, like, why, if there wasn't, why not? Do you really have to climb a tree to find out how tall it is? Can't you just use trigonometry? I think if there's other trees around. I'm not sure you can necessarily see the top of the tree mm-hmm. where you are. Yeah, that's fair. Um, are we ready for one final physics question? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. As promised, we have a units question. Yes. Christ. So I've kind of, if I asked it one way, then I've kind of given it away the answer. Okay. So I'm going to ask it the more difficult way. I'm going to ask you, how long is a meter? Oh. Or equally, like, how is a meter defined? Oh, 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 uh, oh, um... I'm doing some conversions. I'm calculating. I'm calculating it. Um, I love that you're calculating. Ah, fine. No, wait. Shoot. No, it's... Uh... Okay, my answer is going to go first because Alistair did math. Okay. Yeah. Okay, my answer is that it's defined, measured in terms of the speed of flight. So time. Okay, that's a good answer. To get full points i'm going to prompt you for one more element that you need um what's the okay so like once you once you've measured the speed of light what else do you have to define before you can define a meter time yeah i said time okay what's that what are you prompting her no (laughs) (laughs) what's the what's the si unit of time seconds i don't know yeah there you go okay i thought we knew that the meters seconds were involved in the speed of light so i assumed we were using seconds to get to meters by crossing it out upper and lower fraction bits. <laughs> yeah, okay. Alright, I will accept your answer. Thank you. If Alistair has a better answer, I'll give him a bonus point. Probably has a more specific answer. Um, so a meter is... Oh no, I don't know what I've just calculated. <laughs> a meter is defined as the distance light travels in one second. That's what I wrote down, right? No. What? No, that's a light second. How far does light travel in one second, Alistair? Yeah. Uh, 31,304 meters. <laughs> no, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I mean, not really, but like, what's the speed of light? The speed of light is 9.8 times 10 to the 8 meters per second squared. Oh, it is 9.8. I wrote down 9.8. I can point it out. 
I was like, I think 9.8 question mark. I put some units in there. There's meters and seconds. It's not 9.8. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, 9.8. 9.8, what you're thinking of is uh, the acceleration due to gravity. Oh, shoot. That's the acceleration due to gravity. Yeah. I'm going to cross out 9.8 at most places on the Earth. So, like, gravitational acceleration is 9.8 meters per second squared. Uh. The speed of light is almost 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. Oh, it's 2.99... Oh, yeah, it's 2.99 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. So how far does light travel in a second? 3.9 times 10 to the 8 meters. Yeah. 3 point. <laughs> so, Alistair, I'm afraid you were wrong. But we appreciate you trying to math it out. <laughs> yeah, so it's 1 divided by 3 times 10 to the 8. Point zero 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 something. Maybe more zeros, we're not sure. Uh, 3.3 times 10 to the negative 9. It's the distance that light travels in a 1 over 3 times 10 to the 8. Exactly. Of a second. Right. Boom. Nailed it. What is interesting is that the meter is defined in terms of the second, which means that you have to define the second independently. You can't use the speed of light to uh, measure the second if you're using the speed of light and the second to measure the meter. Can I hazard a guess at how we measure, how we define the second? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some sort of oscillatory thing yeah. in an element. I think maybe cobalt, but I'm not sure. Um, yes. I think it's cesium. Oh, cesium. I knew it was a C. It's a cesium. It's an isotope of cesium that has... But it's the time it takes for it to oscillate yeah. between one and the others. It, I think it maybe used to be. Oh, then did it get standardized? <sighs> I can't keep up with all of these changes. The way that it's defined now is by measuring the hyperfine splitting of cesium. Okay. Hyperfine transition frequency of the cesium-133 atom. Uh, So the frequency of the light that comes out of this transition is this number. Mm -hmm. Is 9 billion, 192 million, 631,770 hertz. So one over that number gives you a second. Yeah, cool. Neat. Complicated measurements abound. Who knew this was going to be so much about SI units? <laughs> this is so hard. Well, we'll have to do. We'll have to do a full episode on it. Seconds are defined yeah. by cesium. The kilogram is defined by Planck. I would love to. Like, I reckon you could do a whole hour and just one at one SI unit. Yeah. Maybe you guys could. Yeah. One of my favorite facts about units is that uh, during the French Revolution, they came up with a decimal time. Maybe I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but uh, they came up with the metric system for measurement, but then also a decimal unit for time. So there were, you know, 100 hours in a day mm. and 100 days in a month kind of thing. It right. wasn't yeah, yeah, called yeah. days and months, obviously. Um, and it was based on, I think it was based on the sun and moon cycle, but I'm not exactly sure. But it fell out of favor because the world had already really converted to using the Gregorian calendar yeah. and it was already so entrenched in everything so it it fell out of favor that's so interesting but we have adopted the metric system well looking at you us and also the uk in some in some uh looking at you the uk who drives in miles per hour the us and the uk true but you guys know your weight in pounds so like yeah 
Depends. It's also like that's a yeah. Canadian thing. You're not perfect either, is all I'm saying. Like on our driver's licenses, it's yeah. in kilograms. I also know my weight in kilograms. I know both. I do too. There you go. We're just bilingual. <laughs> Bi- bi-unital. <laughs> bi-unital. Bimodal? <laughs> Bimodal. Bi-unitary. All right. Cool. That was fun. We learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. If any of our listeners have fun facts that they want to try and get us with, you can send us an mm-hmm. email. Our email is phd32b at gmail.com. So that's phd32b at gmail.com. You can test our science knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or find us on social media. Not yet a DR. Pretty much everywhere. Well, mm-hmm. at least on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, also, do be sure to give us a review on um, any of the podcasting websites. Podbean, Apple Podcasts. Spotify, if you know how slash can figure out how to do it. We don't know how to review podcasts on Spotify. Yeah. And we'll be back for season two in January. So we'll see you in the new year. Well, we won't see you, but you will hear us. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this Quizzizode. So thanks very much for listening. And thanks very much to Ellison for his musical efforts in this and all of our episodes. I'm Alistair. I'm Sienna. And I'm Beth. And we'll be in your ears again soon. (laughs) 